The information expressed in the following podcast is intended for educational purposes only and was created by and belongs solely to Believe Limited and the Flow podcast and does not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors. Please speak to your healthcare provider before making any medical decisions. Hi, I'm Jessica and welcome to Flow. I'm here with Sarah Watson, sex therapist and Dr. Ashley Brandt, OBGYN, complex family planning specialist in Ohio. And yes, we all want to know, how's your flow? Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I have a hormonal IUD, so I have no flow. (laughs) Don't ever plan on having flow again. Hey, living it up, living it up without the flow, and yet so knowledgeable about the flow, supremely knowledgeable about the flow. I'm going to actually jump right in and say, I I looked up that you started in veterinary care. So did you deal with any animals with flow? Yes. In college, I worked as an assistant at a veterinary clinic, and one of the coolest things I got to do was help deliver puppies. And so that dog was actually not having any flow, but the process of giving birth is a little bit bloody. So <laughs> got some exposure to that. It was really, really cool, though. And that is part of what led me into the field of obstetrics and gynecology. I am so glad we're starting one of our abortion episodes with puppies being birthed. We need that. We need to ground in that reality of puppies being birthed before we really get into the issues of the legislation that's going on to restrict abortion access in the world. But before we fully get into it, I'm also going to do our check-in really quick. Sarah, how's your flow? Good. I had a new Mirena put in a couple weeks ago. Well, it's been six weeks now, so no flow. Thank goodness. The doc was like, hey, you might. I was like, "I uh, nope, no, I will not. And then also saw yesterday for our listeners that Mirena, and I actually can verify, but now it's good for up to eight years. Yes. Did you hear that? Yes, I can confirm. It just was announced (sighs) late last week, and it applies to Mirena's that people already have, too. So exciting. I was so pumped to gain three years of not (laughs) having to go through through that again. So very exciting. So no flow here. I think I might have ovulated because that does happen for me on Mirena, and I feel it, but still kind of getting used to the new Mirena. How about you, Jess? How's your flow? Gosh, thank you so much for asking. I am Jessica. I do menstruate. But right now I am luteal, just post-off, post-off. So hormonally, I'm feeling groovy, but also with spikes of like, are you fucking kidding me? It's like a special kind of like ovulation jolt rage, I want to say, that comes post-ovulation jolt of hormones. It's really fun. (laughs) Super fun. (laughs) Um, it's helpful to know how these hormones affect one when one is menstruating or when one is not menstruating to still know your hormonal flow because hormones can affect our stress. And as I mentioned, being in America right now, as a doctor, I imagine is even more stressful than just as a woman. Ashley, we're going to get into talking about why right after this quick break. This ad is brought to you by Von Vendi, Von Willebrand Factor Recombinant. My name is Nicole, and my deciding factor is making my voice heard. To hear the backstory, drop by Von Vendi, that's V-O-N-V-E-N-D-I dot com slash patient dash stories. And we're back talking about abortion, specifically today talking about abortion education. We're going to educate ourselves. Thanks to Dr. Ashley Brandt, who's here with us today. Hi, thanks. Thanks for being here. We're so excited to have you. 
I'm excited so, to talk I about this. Jess and I have decided to talk about this for the rest of the year. So we do an episode a month and we thought after everything that happened with Roe that we were going to focus on abortion conversation for the rest of the year. So really getting into that hard conversation. But let's hear a little bit about you before we dive into that. Tell us a little bit about your education and how you got into ob and how you became a provider. I went to medical school at Michigan State University. That's actually how Sarah and I met at Michigan State when I was there as an undergrad. And I decided to do residency in obstetrics and gynecology. And while I was a resident, I decided to do a fellowship in what's called complex family planning. That is a subspecialty where you get additional training in contraception for patients with complex medical situations or unique anatomical situations that affect their contraceptive options. And it also includes advanced training in abortion. So at later gestational ages and for people that have you know, unique medical or anatomical situations. Part of what led me to wanting to do that fellowship were some experiences that I had in grad school and during med school. I did a master's degree in public health as well. And when I was there, I attended an anniversary event for Roe v. Wade. So Roe v. Wade was the law or the Supreme Court decision in 1973 that allowed the legalization of abortion across the United States. And there were a couple of women there who were sharing their stories of what it was like to have abortions before it was legal. And their stories were just horrific, frankly. Yeah. And it, you know, it made me realize how lucky we are now to have access to the full scope of reproductive health care in the United States. And it also showed to me, you know, no matter whether abortions are legal or illegal, women will have abortions. The only difference is going to be where they get those abortions, whether they can talk to their doctor about it and they get them with a person who's got appropriate training and how dangerous the abortion is. And then I also did a rotation in another country when I was a medical student in a place where abortion is not legal. And I had the opportunity to take care of some women who were getting care after having had abortions that were not legal, or at least not done within the formal healthcare system. And so to see those complications in real life was transformative for me. And so then I decided that I'm okay with providing this kind of care. In fact, I feel a moral obligation to provide abortions. And so I was gonna make this a big part of my career. I'm just gonna enter a round of applause here. So, you know, in the edit, there'll be like a whole crowd cheering for your mission in action. (laughs) So to kind of table set, can you help us and help the listeners know what kind of methods of clinical abortion are available? We'll go back and talk about non-clinical as well. Yeah, so abortion falls into two categories. So there are procedures and there are medications to end pregnancies. And so I think when you say clinical abortion, you're probably referring to procedures or surgeries. Is that right? I suppose so. Yeah, maybe that's not the right vernacular language. That's okay. Um, So for procedural abortion or surgical abortion, it generally involves giving pain medications, if that's what the patient wants, and then gently stretching open the cervix, which is the entrance to the uterus, and using suction or instruments to remove the pregnancy. It's a very safe way to end a pregnancy. It's generally a short procedure, often less than 10 minutes, and usually done in a healthcare facility, but not necessarily an operating room. 
Are there generally known expected side effects from surgical procedures? Yeah. So after a procedure, some of the normal things that someone can expect are some cramping and some bleeding. It's usually like a period, usually maybe a little bit heavier than a period, but not by much. Passing some small clots, especially in the first day or two, is normal. Some cramping is normal. The bleeding can last for two, even two and a half weeks. And, you know, in the second week, it's usually less than a period. By the time they hit, you know, the two-week mark, it's usually spotting or very light flow. The most common thing that people use for pain management after the abortion is over is something like ibuprofen or naproxen or other NSAIDs, over-the-counter medications. And I want to ask a quick follow-up for, for those who are with bleeding disorders are, I'm jumping in with this, are there other considerations before going through a procedural abortion? So for people with bleeding disorders, it, it sort of depends on the, the bigger clinical picture, what the bleeding disorder is and whether they've had hemorrhages before. But yes, it is something that we take into consideration. And it also depends on how far along the pregnancy is. So for example, someone with a bleeding disorder, if the pregnancy is very, very early, say six to eight weeks, usually the procedure can be done with no concern or very little concern for excessive bleeding. Um, somebody who's farther along, you know, later, like into the second trimester, the risk of bleeding is a little bit higher. And so that's something that may weigh into the decision making about the most appropriate place to do the abortion. The vast majority of abortions are done in freestanding health clinics. But having a bleeding disorder could be a reason to have it done in the hospital. Gotcha. Makes sense. I, I was thinking, too, about if you could clarify, you know, often we hear about DNCs when we are talking about abortion. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about DNC versus D&E, which is something a little bit different. So I was wondering if you could clarify for our listeners what that means. Yeah. DNC stands for dilation and curatage, and D&E stands for dilation and extraction. And a DNC is the term for the procedure in the first trimester, so up through 12 weeks pregnancy, whereas we call it a D&E in the second trimester, so starting at 13 or 14 weeks. The procedure itself in the first trimester, as I mentioned, we can use suction to remove the pregnancy. The farther along the pregnancy gets, suction may not be adequate to remove all the pregnancy tissue, and so other instruments might be necessary. And that's typically how we would do it for a DNA. Good. That's very helpful. Well, so then I suppose, what is non-procedural abortion? What is the right term for that yeah. to start with? We would call it medication abortion or medical abortion. And early in pregnancy, we just call it medical abortion. In the second trimester or even later in pregnancy, it might be called a labor induction, but it involves taking pills, which cause the cervix to open and cramping and bleeding, and you expel the pregnancy without having a procedure. It is also a very, very safe way to end a pregnancy. Although, and I'm going to just anticipate that you're going to ask this, people with bleeding disorders that cause them to have excessive bleeding are not ideal candidates for having a medication abortion. And that's because early medication abortion often happens at home, outside of a healthcare center, and the bleeding can be excessive if you have a bleeding disorder. Mm. It'd be a great time to talk to your hematologist about what you should be doing or what treatment you should be taking 
we're still we're still trying to track down what if there is any protocols written for those with bleeding disorders and I'm I'm kind of sounds like maybe you have some experience with that Ashley but I'm not sure. I haven't gotten a clear answer from my physician <laughs> or my nurses yet just reaching out to them. So if you know anything more about that, we'd love to hear about it. But if you don't, that's okay. Yeah. So this area, you know, research around abortion care for people that have bleeding disorders is definitely still in in its infancy. There's not a ton of research on this. The general consensus is that uh, procedure or surgery is preferred. And so I, I certainly think you could expect to be steered towards a procedure just for safety reasons. And then in terms of what needs to be done to prevent bleeding, as I mentioned, early in pregnancy, probably nothing. It's probably safe to just have the procedural abortion. Later in pregnancy, we would definitely talk with your hematologist and collaborate with them around whether additional medications are necessary. And as with all procedural abortion, your doctor or healthcare provider is going to be prepared in case bleeding occurs. So we have a number of medications that we could give to anybody who has excessive bleeding at the time of an abortion, medications or procedures to stop the bleeding. I remember getting that when I was hemorrhaging after having whatever. I'm sure it's similar, right? Like after birth, like I have a hemorrhage and in the OR and they're shooting me through full of stuff. So I'm assuming it's very similar in regards to getting the bleeding to stop. Yes, exactly. The way that we would manage a post-abortion hemorrhage is very, very similar to how we would manage a postpartum hemorrhage. Like almost identical, really. The main difference is that after an abortion, the uterus is smaller. And the actual risk of bleeding after an abortion is much smaller than it is after a term delivery. Makes sense. We talk a lot about that with the women in our community, about hemorrhaging after birth. If the, Even if I, you know, I was highly medicated and my factor level was, was where it needed to be and still had that complication after birth. But it's definitely something that the women in our community talk about. So it's good to know that, hey, if you've been through this and you are, are going to make that decision... Um, to have an abortion that that you're going to be taken care of and that it's going to be okay and, and less than, hopefully, your postpartum hemorrhage if you've had one before. Yeah, and as I mentioned, for people that do have bleeding disorders, oftentimes we would choose to do those in the hospital. And that's, you know, so that we can make sure that they're in the right place in case they were to need a blood transfusion or any advanced procedures to stop the bleeding. All right. Well, then we need to ask about, and this is where I'm not sure I have the right term. Is it non-clinical abortion? What are the methods of abortion that you were able to witness that are unfortunately the practice of abortion when abortion becomes illegal? Ah, so the general umbrella term that we would use would be self-managed abortion. Because I think you're referring to abortions that are happening without the aid of the healthcare system. So that might involve sourcing pills online or getting pills from friends or, you know, whatever it is, you know, off the internet. And, and typically people are getting medications that are the same or very similar to what they would get if they were having a medication abortion in a healthcare facility. The main difference might be that they are not um, doing it within the confines of the healthcare system, so they may not have a doctor or a healthcare professional to go to if they have questions during the process, if they feel like something isn't right, if they're worried about a complication. And so we are already starting to see patients like that in our emergency rooms and coming to our OB clinics that are letting us know that, you know, 
they took a pill. They're not exactly sure what pill they took. They had some cramping and bleeding. They just want to check up to make sure everything is okay. <laughs> we are also seeing a lot of people who are traveling to other states to get mm -hmm. abortions. And those are legal abortions just in another state crossing a border. But obviously that's not accessible to everybody. Not everybody has the means to travel take time off work, get childcare, pay for it, things like that. And then I guess sort of the last option is telemedicine for abortion. And I'm in Ohio, and so telemedicine is explicitly banned for abortion care here. And so the, as far as I'm aware, there are no companies that are doing telemedicine visits and then mailing pills to Ohio, but that might be an option for people in other states. Interesting. So that's within America right now. And not to go into like a detailed history of how other abortions may have been conducted, self-managed abortions in the past, would you be open to sharing a little bit of what you experienced when you were traveling, when you saw women in, in areas that didn't have access to healthcare abortion? Yeah. I was in a country in Eastern Africa, and their abortion is legal only in a limited number of circumstances. And But even though it's legal, there are no abortion physicians or healthcare providers there, or very little, I should say. And so we took care of women who came in. And, you know, I'll just add that it's impossible to tell whether someone is experiencing a miscarriage or whether they were trying to induce an abortion on their own or with the use of herbs or instruments or things like that. From having talked to the physicians that were taking care of these patients, they seemed to think that the women we were caring for, you know, it was a combination. Some of them were having spontaneous miscarriages and others had likely tried to end the pregnancy themselves. And so we saw people who had retained tissue in the uterus and were having persistent bleeding, people who had infections, fevers, feeling really sick and unwell, and uh, people who had had some excessive bleeding. So part of what that care entails is, you know, providing a procedure to finish the miscarriage or finish the abortion and giving antibiotics and IV fluids and sometimes blood transfusions. And, and of course, there are times when women are so sick with infection or anemia and blood loss that they may die as a result of the complications. Mm -hmm. I know it's heavy. It's heavy. It's heavy. I thank you for going into the detail that we need to hear and understand to fully grasp the parameters of why it's imperative that we are fighting for the reality of access to abortion. To get that access, we know that we need healthcare providers to be educated. And you went through the system, and then it sounds like you gave yourself your own experience and education. What do you think might be most glaringly missing from education for physicians? that would help the movement towards maintaining access to abortion? Yeah. So education about abortion is a required component of medical school curriculum. At the medical school level, there are educational objectives for OBGYN rotations about abortion. It includes understanding what abortion is, how to talk to patients about abortion and about their pregnancy options, and to understand what the complications of abortion could be. And at the next level, which is residency, which is, you know, after they've completed medical school, they're physicians, they're training to be OBGYNs, 
there are required components of residency training related to abortion. And so similar learning objectives, although obviously as a resident, the training is more hands-on. So these are required components of the training across the United States. I think the, the huge question right now is how are we going to get our residents, our young OBGYNs, the future of this profession, the training that they need in places where abortion is not legal anymore. So there are multiple states now across the United States where abortion is either completely illegal or severely restricted. And so I'm very worried that the next generation of OBGYNs is going to have limited experience providing abortion care when they finish their training. In those specific states. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, would you say to Ashley, and maybe this is my misinformation, would you say that there are a lot of providers where it is legal or where it should be legal that do offer abortion service? I mean, like, is, is your specialization... I guess, what's the population of those providers? It seems like it's small to me, but I could be totally wrong. Yeah, no, you're right. So the vast majority of abortions in the U.S. are provided by a small number of clinicians. And that's sort of because abortion has become siloed in freestanding abortion clinics for the most part. Mm. And there are some benefits to that model of care. It means that patients are in a uniformly pro-choice environment when they go to get their care. The staff are very good at what they do. You know, everybody's there for the same reason. It also provides an ideal environment for training. It means that we can have our OBGYN residents come to those clinics and they get to see a high volume of care in a short period of time. The downside, as you've alluded to, is that it means that the vast majority of OBGYNs across the country are not hands-on providing abortions. And that siloing of care has left abortion clinics and abortion clinicians sort of vulnerable to legislative interference, to harassment, Mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. I have so many thoughts and feelings (laughs) about all of that. Like it makes me so... just it's it's enraging and I think knowing here at least in Michigan having clients and and then actually people in our lives that uh, need to have an abortion for whatever reason and knowing that one of them recently said oh this is the only person in this system that provides a service it was one doctor yeah and it's a giant system and I was shocked and I was like what? What there's only there's only one you have like and that was that was really frustrating for for that person and I imagine for so many other women to know that there's only one person in that system that's going to do that. Yes. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. And huge areas of the United States are completely without any abortion providers. There are entire states right. that have one abortion provider. There are states where people fly in to provide abortion care. And unfortunately, in those states, there may not be many options for someone to get an in-hospital abortion, even if that's the safest, most appropriate thing for them, because the people who will do it are working at freestanding clinics only. Mm. Do Then would hospitals then restrict the physician to have access 
I know I might that is a quite question. a loaded question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh, I know I'm opening a bag of yeah. worms here. No, but. that's okay. So so th- this is actually sort of a complicated question. And this question has actually come up in abortion laws, like even to the level of the Supreme Court. So states have passed laws saying that physicians who provide abortions and freestanding clinics have to have what we call admitting privileges at, at a nearby hospital. But abortion is so, so safe that the need to admit a patient to the hospital is so rare that it sometimes doesn't even meet the minimum criteria to be eligible for admitting privileges. Mm. And then, of course, there may be political factors or influences which might prevent a person who, you know, abortion care is their primary work from getting hospital privileges. And so that those types of laws have actually been used to like close entire clinics because they can't get admitting privileges. Or maybe the only hospitals nearby are religiously affiliated and they don't want mm. to accept patients from abortion clinics or, you know, be the the hospital system on record with a an agreement for transferring a patient who might have a complication. Okay, so just what we thought, right? Like that, okay, there's limited providers, there's even less places to go. And then if you can't have admitting privileges, then again, they're just kind of taking everything away and putting women all over the world at risk and especially in our country. Yeah, what we end up with is a system that really it depends on the geography of where you live, right? Like if you live in California or New York you probably won't have significant difficulty finding a healthcare provider who can provide you with a safe abortion, right? If you live in Texas or even Ohio, mm-hmm. yeah, the situation is totally different. Yeah, deserts, right? Like deserts of providers. There's nobody there. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I keep hearing it's like a call to arms for more people to get involved to become providers. <laughs> it's like there's a mm-hmm. need. But we also touched upon it, and I'd love to take a quick moment for the stigma and religious insecurity around the reality of abortion. As you mentioned, a hospital with a religious affiliation is going to be a obstacle. Uh, right. So, of course, um, uh, hospitals with Christian affiliations predominantly may have you know, parts of their policies that prohibit them from participating in abortion care. And patients may not even necessarily know if they're going to a hospital that has a religious affiliation. You know, oftentimes there are mergers between non-religious affiliated hospitals and religious hospitals. And so sometimes those affiliations can change without patients being aware and patients can be somewhat caught off guard. That can even be an issue with things like contraceptives or sterilization, not even limited to abortion. Separation of religion and healthcare. <laughs> well, I, I guess what the question also that comes up is that what, what would be a um, would you just ask if you were going to your OB/GYN and you hadn't let's say they haven't been there in a year they're just going for an annual would the best way to approach your provider would just be to ask like what's the affiliation of the hospital or what's their policy or what would be a good way do you have any ideas of how I keep wanting to say clients, but they're not. They're <laughs> patients to approach their provider. Yeah, absolutely. And ask those questions. Yes. So it would be totally reasonable to ask your healthcare provider what hospital they would recommend you go to if you ever have a pregnancy-related complication or, or even not a pregnancy-related complication. If, if you ever need care, certainly ask them which hospital system they would recommend that you go to. It's also important to go 
to a healthcare system where your healthcare professional has a relationship, just for the sake of them mm-hmm. being able to get access to your records and you know to see if you were in the emergency room or admitted to the hospital or things like that. That's that's really helpful. Yeah, I don't think that there's I don't know that there's like a clearinghouse on the internet of religiously affiliated hospitals. Yeah, the only thing I've seen recently, and it was definitely after Roe, and again. No one judge me, but on TikTok, right? That <laughs> talked about this before, right? There are plenty of providers, and there is actually a giant. I want to say it's over seven hundred, maybe more now. I hope more, but seven hundred providers throughout the country that will provide abortions. But it, I'm not sure it lists, and I have to go back and find it. I don't know if it lists what hospital they are associated with, but it would be. I mean, we know we have the list of providers, but. What about the hospital system? Because what if there is an emergency and they're going to turn you away? Or, you know, because especially with those in our community with bleeding disorders, like it's it's already a big deal to make this decision. It's life changing, let alone if you're having a complication with a pregnancy or you were miscarrying. Like you, it's going to be really bad if you aren't taking your medication or if your factor level is low or whatever's going on. So it might be good for all all patients to know what's going on with the hospital system that they're affiliated with. Yeah, and and technically all hospitals, regardless of their religious affiliation or regardless of the personal beliefs of the healthcare providers, they should provide emergency care, right? So if, if you show up on their doorstep and you're hemorrhaging from a miscarriage, there's a federal law that says they have to take care of you. And so it's really, and it's you know, within the code of medical ethics, that we are obligated to provide life-saving care when we can. So you really shouldn't be turned away in situations like that. But you are absolutely right that there may be less clear situations where the care that's provided is influenced in more subtle ways by religious affiliations of either the healthcare system itself or the people involved in that system. I know that in your, I know it's, it's like hard to come back from that because I really want to talk more about religion, <laughs> but we should not on this episode. You've experienced some of the unpleasant outcomes of abortion, witnessing it in different areas. Do you have a story or could you share a situation that you've seen that highlights a positive health outcome of an abortion? Oh, I have, I have a million stories. The reason I do this is because I really believe and know that abortion is life-saving. And and I mean that both in the literal sense and in the figurative sense, right? Taking control of your reproductive life course allows you to take control of your life more generally. If you don't have any power over when you have children or how many children you have, you don't have full power over your destiny. And at the more literal level, you know, we do, as, you know, a complex family planning specialist, I provide abortions for people who have conditions that would put their lives at risk during pregnancy. And it's one thing for someone to choose to get pregnant and have a wanted pregnancy and to, to make a conscious decision to take that risk. But about 40% of all pregnancies in the United States are unplanned. And so when someone didn't want to be pregnant and now they're facing that risk, I consider it an an honor to be able to take care of them and help them end that pregnancy. 
I know. I'm like <laughs> trying not to. It's so wonderful to hear you phrase it. We'll create that in part of our captions for sure. Life-saving. Abortion is healthcare and abortion is life-saving. Thank you so much, Ashley, for sharing your glorious passion and wisdom with us. We're also going to include in the show notes some of the people you've in other platforms suggested people look up. There's someone from St. Louis, Huntsville, Alabama, and Texas. Thank you so much for flowing with us. Is there anything else on this straight talk about abortion we want to add before we wrap it up? All I want is for people to vote. Just make sure that you're registered to vote. (laughs) You know the value of that. You see how it impacts the work you do. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it's our state. It's not just for the president. It's our state legislators that are making these laws. It is the locally elected judges that are deciding whether or not a 15 year old deserves a judicial bypass to be able to get an abortion without her parents permission. Like, like those local elections are really important too. So important. And we will be diving into a little bit more of policy in future episodes and hopefully get to keep up with you, Ashley, Dr. Brandt, and all the wonderful work you're doing. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been great. I think we covered all of the most important things, so thank you. Cheers to that. Thank you, thank you, Ashley. It's so good to have you on and have you talk about this, and I I love your passion, and I want to hear more about your stories, too, but maybe we do that with wine. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm up for that. Okay, perfect. Wine later. Also, more of an up-level on abortion. This was Abortion Education. That's it for now, but join us on the first Thursday of every month this year for more straight talk about abortion. Bloodstream Media is more than just a rare disease podcast network. With shows on chronic pain, menstrual health, and Dungeons and Dragons, yes, Dungeons and Dragons, Bloodstream Media's got a little something for everyone. Visit bloodstreammedia.com or find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to learn more. And thanks to our sponsor Takeda for their support of Flow. Flow is produced by Bloodstream Media. Shout out to Amy Board, creative director, and your hosts, Sarah Watson and Jessica Richmond. In 2022, Flow will have new episodes the second Thursday of every month. Hey, that's the day after I start menstruating. 